The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Professor Christopher Eukins. He is the co-director of the Government Procurement Law Program at the George Washington University Law School. Teaches a variety of courses there on national and international procurement law with a particular, Chris is particularly known for his work in international procurement law. He's testified on issues of procurement reform and trade before committees of the U.S. Congress and the European Parliament. Um, And he lectures around the world on uh, international procurement, procurement systems, uh, comparisons of procurement systems and how um, they col- should collectively or not work together. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Roger. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to this conversation, but and before we get into uh, the international stuff and all that, int- that's v- extremely interesting, um, I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about what's going on at uh, George Washington University Law School. Thanks very much, Roger. Yeah, it's an exciting time at GW. Uh, the program is changing, arguably, more than it's changed in its entire history. The program started in 1960, and it was primarily a law program for many years. Uh, Ralph Nash and John Sabinick started a separate program privately to teach contracting personnel, to teach private lawyers, uh, separate from the program at the law school. In the 1990s, that, that was um, bought by a private company, and uh, we really, between the 1990s and now, we've been focusing a lot. But now we're really expanding a, a separate program, the Master's in Science and Government Contracts. And that's run in conjunction with the business school at GW. And it gives us an opportunity to bring non-lawyers into the class. Uh, there are typically mid-career folks working either in the government or working in private contractors. And they join the classes. And, what his, and they, it, what's it, it's proven is the classes are not just about law. They're also in very important ways about policy and about management decisions. And it's really been, it's been very gratifying to have these folks who are not lawyers sitting across from the law students and really teaching the law students as we go along. Uh, the the master students, the business students, enjoy being in the, in the law environment. They enjoy the rigor of a, of a legal education. But uh, but at the same time, the law students are learning. For instance, we, we've gone for a few generations without law students being able to hear directly from a contracting officer what it means to be mission-focused, not being rules-focused, but being mission-focused and understanding how important it is that a good contracting officer will focus on mission. That has a, that has a tremendously leavening and enlightening uh, impact uh, on the legal education. Right. Well, it makes for better lawyers, right? I mean— you, you when, when you described that, Chris, I was thinking about when I was back at GSA and one of the things at the time I was there, we were we focused on, and particularly in the in the '90s, was this idea that you know, you are an advisor to the business operation, and you have to understand the business operations, their concerns, their issues, you know, and what they're trying to achieve to be able to give them better advice, right, and and understand. Um, what what the goal is in, in in being able to advise how to navigate that process to get to the mission requirements. I mean, it sounds like it, it sounds like it's it's a great um, 
has a positive impact on your law students and on the on these new students as well who are coming in. It does. And at the same time, what we're doing is really expanding our work both nationally and internationally. So not only do now we have contracts folks who are not lawyers in the classroom, but we also have increasingly foreign students coming in and also foreign professors. For example, we have Michael Kania this year from the University of Silesia. He's, he's from a part of Poland that was historically um, part of Germany. He's fluent in both Polish and in German and, of course, in English. And he participates in our discussion. He's, he focuses on European defense issues, defense procurement issues. So he brings a whole new perspective to our discussions, which is very, very healthy. Right. And that, I mean, that just makes your students more attractive, ultimately, you know, to the private sector and to government folks. Yeah. Correct? That's a, and that's a really complicated question, Roger, and it's an important one. What it means in practice is if somebody has read a journal um, that's like our public contract law journal is produced with students from GW, has read a journal from GW, or heard a student from GW speak, or heard a professor from GW speak, uh, that has, frankly, a, a huge impact on how they view the the American procurement community. I was speaking to a German community, German procurement community. They have a um, an association called the Forum Fagaba, which is a collection of industry and government sitting together. They cooperate, and they said, but the, and it's it's an association. It, it's like our imagine NCMA with government support, and they work out policy in the German realm. But they were completely stunned. They said, "So how many people are in your procurement community?" And I said, "There are about a hundred thousand people in the federal procurement community." They were absolutely astounded that we have a procurement community that's la- that, that large. By having foreigners come into our community and learn about what we do, we help to build bridges to their systems. And what's, awesome, what's really astounding oftentimes is you discover there's a parallel universe out there that you never really knew about, but people are doing exactly what we're doing here in the United States, and we could talk about it some more. That's, that's very, very healthy. Yeah, and share lessons learned, best practices, and things not to do. Is that yeah, and that's the what what we're what we're trying to do in integrating in our in our program and to make it accessible that best practices lessons. We're trying to develop a suite of online courses that would be available to foreigners. The DC bar is about to change their rules, and it'll be possible for example a German lawyer as a juris doctor to be able to take get an advanced degree uh, from our school, doing it all online. We're trying to figure out ways how we share those lessons learned. I, I have to tell you, I mean, we had a really interesting experience last year. Um, a judge from the highest court in the European Union, the Court of Justice for the European Union, sits in Luxembourg. His name is Christopher Vida. He's the British um, nominee to that court. So he's a very, very smart British barrister who's sitting on the highest court in Europe. And For now, right? For now. <laughs> Brexit. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, his, uh, yeah we, we didn't talk about that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's a little sensitive. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's a good point. Uh-huh. Um, the, but at the, he gave a presentation and he went through, a rest, and we published in the Public Contract Law Journal. It was a recitation of all the interesting things that the Court of Justice, the Court of Justice, unlike our Supreme Court, is played a really important role in shaping European law. And he stood up at the end. I stood up at the end of his speech. He gave a great speech. He went for about an hour. And I stood up at the end. And I said, Judge, that was really, really interesting. And I, I, part of it is you're always playing 
the dumb American to a certain extent because you don't want to be offensive to anybody. So I said, Judge, great speech, but, you know, the system you described in Europe is one we've had here in the United States for, you know, 50 or 100 years. It's right. exactly the same set of rules. Right. And he was he was astounded. He had no idea that they have down to something as granular as what we would call, call a cardinal change, a dramatic change to yes. a contract. Yes. That, at that granular level, the Court of Justice for the European Union ended up exactly the same place as the American rules. It's just amazing that, that the systems are evolving in parallel. And the goal, of course, is to figure out ways to have more conversations as the systems are evolving in parallel so that nobody makes a silly mistake. Right. Um, well, that's a good segue to talk. start talking a little bit more about um, international markets and, you know, pr- international procurement rules. And, um, you know, I know one of the things we, you wanted to talk a little bit about is what what's going on out there and what uh, with regard to in- international markets, procurement rules, and what does it mean for U.S. companies? I think that for U.S. companies, the biggest concern has to be the aerospace and defense market. Um, the aerospace and defense market is such an important part of of our community, the procurement community. Of course, the, the Defense Department has long encouraged foreign sales in order to be able to uh, uh, to spread the costs of a uh, of defense procurement across a, a broader base. And it's also like the F thirty five, right? Like the That's F-35. a perfect example, exactly. Right? Yeah. And you see, the Trump administration has been pushing for yeah. for more F, foreign foreign military sales. So that that has always been a part of the Defense Department's policy suite. The same time for American companies, when American companies saw the downturn over the last decade, they saw a downturn coming, and they moved to international markets. So just to, to give some statistics here, um, we had in in um, two thousand seven in twenty seventeen there were one hundred forty three billion dollars worth of exports in in the defense and aerospace field. Um, over the past five years, those exports have grown by 26% from $113 billion in 2012 to $143 billion, as I said, in 2017. Aerospace accounted for 9% of all U.S. exports in domestic goods. So 9% of all our exports from the United States are in aerospace and, de- and defense. It's, the, it's the, the aerospace and defense industry is the leading net exporting industry, and it generated a trade surplus, a trade surplus of $86 billion in 2017. Um, the, the U.S. is the world's largest exporter of aerospace and defense products and accounted for 34% of the global market in aerospace and defense. So a, a U.S. exports, the, the aerospace and defense exports, are a tremendously important part of the U.S. economy. And anything that would threaten those exports should be a very significant concern. Right. And uh, you know what, Chris, on that point, we'll talk about you know those threats and what's what's out there that p- creates potential risk for American companies uh, when we come back from the great from the break. Excuse me. My guest today is Chris Eukins. He is a co-director of the Government Procurement Law Program at the George Washington University Law School, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred AM. Today, my guest is Chris Eukins. He is a professor and co-director of the Government Procurement Law Program at the George Washington University Law School, Um, teaches and travels the world focusing on international procurement and different rules in different countries and, you know, how we can all get along. Right, Chris? (laughs) (laughs) I try. (laughs) Yes. Um, So um, when we took the break, um, Chris, you had described the scope, the huge scope of uh, the American 
uh, export market for aero, aero and defense, uh, aerospace and defense. And um, I know you want to talk a little bit more about where things are going, what the potential risks are to the to the U.S. Uh, to U.S. companies. Well, one of the biggest risks is uh, various incipient forms of uh, protectionism in the European defense market. And uh, historically, the Europeans have been very ambivalent about setting up systems that would effectively exclude the Americans. The Europeans recognize that their their procurement market, their defense procurement system is highly balkanized across many countries. And they also realize that they need to work cooperatively with the United States and NATO to respond to, to external threats. So historically, the, the Europeans have been careful about setting up rules that would create barriers, overt barriers, to American companies who want to export weapon systems into Europe. That's changing now slightly, and it's something that we need to be very, very sensitive to. In many ways, ironically, it's a response to President Trump. As you recall, President Trump went to Europe, and he berated European leaders for not spending enough on defense. And their response is, Okay, we'll spend more in defense, but oh, by the way, we're going to spend it on European companies. They're structuring their initiative, and this is really being driven by the European Commission in Brussels. They're structuring their initiative around something called the European Defense Fund. And the European Defense, think of the European Defense Fund as sort of an SBIR program on steroids. Um, It is a program to encourage European defense companies. Only those that are working between, in order to qualify for the European Defense Fund, which will go to billions of euros, in order to qualify, you have to have an initiative that spans more than one European nation. So you you would have two companies and two European nations working cooperatively initially to do the design work and then ultimately to do production. And there has to be commitment by the nations involved that are that are helping fund this. Some of the funding would come from Brussels. Some of the funding would come from the member states. The nations that are launching these initiatives would have to commit to buying the new technology that is being produced in these consortia or in these cooperative efforts by the by the European defense companies. So you'd get a lock all the way through. You'd be locking out American exporters. What's funny about this, Roger, is that if you look at the statistics, the amount, while you're talking about billions of euros, the European companies that are selling into the Defense Department have tens of billions of dollars of sales every year. So were the Europeans to trigger a protectionist response from the Trump administration, where the Trump administration started discriminating against European companies because of this European Defense Fund initiative, it would have a really asymmetrical effect on the European market. It would hurt Europeans more than Americans. That said, it's important to recognize that this initiative really shouldn't start in the first place because there are reciprocal defense procurement agreements between the United States and its Western European and increasingly Eastern European allies. These reciprocal defense procurement agreements, they guarantee open markets. So if the Europeans are trying to set up new barriers to American defense companies trying to sell in Europe, it's a, it's a fundamental violation of these agreements. There are agreements between the ministries of defense and these various Western and now, as I said, Eastern European nations and the Defense Department. These are a standard part of the procurement landscape, and it's being threatened now. And again, the starting point for all this is Europeans responding to President Trump's demand for greater European spending, but they're responding in a protectionist manner. So, and it's protectionist is a protectionist presumably to grow their own technological base to try to create some economies and it's got to be more than one country 
create some economies of scale or in standardization or all those things is what they're thinking in part? It would, yes. They would all run, uh, the, the research and development and then the production would all run through these European companies to try to create a stronger European defense base. But the Europeans realize internally, they realize that that is going to be very, very difficult to do just because of the scale of the American defense industry. The Americans have a, a natural advantage. So whether or not this initiative is going to succeed is a very open issue. What, what's interesting, too, is that it's driven in part by uh, the European la- rallying cry behind innovation. Now, Roger, if I told you that we were going to use procurement in order to drive innovation in our society, you would laugh out loud. You that say, is correct. I'm like, laughing now, Chris. That's, the, that's like the craziest thing. Yeah. The procu- because of the nature of public procurement for very complicated reasons that we all understand, it's it's like saying, okay, there's a dead horse in the street. Now I'm going to take it to the race course. It just, you, you would not ride that horse to innovation. But the, what the, the way the Europeans got here, it's, it's kind of funny. The Europeans, the, the European Commission, the European Union was funding research and development and they weren't getting clear return on investment. The projects weren't panning out in research and development. So they said oh, we're going to shift this innovation initiative away from Brussels and we're going to decentralize it. We're going to call for the member states to spend more on innovation through procurement. So in essence the member states by doing procurement are then supposed to be pushing innovation. But and, and so all I go to conferences all over Europe. That's all they talk about all the time is, oh, we're going to innovate through procurement. And it's so hard not to say this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It makes uh-huh. sense inside this bubble called Brussels, but it doesn't make sense for Americans because we know that the nature of innovation is really first in the private sector. Yes. It's not in the public sector. Uh, yeah. It's just it, we've you know, it's the nature. It's like you know, people, ideas people want to create, you know, and they have incentives to create. Right. You, <laughs> right. you look at the look at the history. Of American of American procurement from yeah. the early on, American procurement a lot of the innovation early in the 19th century. A lot of the innovation was being was coming. A lot of the engineers in America came out of West Point. A mm, lot of yes. a lot of the innovation yep. early in the in the 19th century. In the latter part, the the um, Harbors Ferry was a place where the United States manufactured guns. That's right. But the United States over time has learned that if you want to have true innovation, you really have to move it out of the public sector and in the private sector. And it's just funny that the Europeans are in such a different place on that. Right. That that is. So one quick question. So how does the UK fit into all this? Are they not part of this? <laughs> or, or, or you know, how does or is that yet to be resolved? Perhaps I don't know. With with Brexit, I mean, there could be an extension. I, I um, there could be an extension into late twenty twenty, sort of a yeah. pause, is, is being described as kicking the can down the road in Britain. Um, what it's it, when I when um, I, I I got a note from a British colleague the other day, and it there was a very credible report in Reuters that the United States was messing with Britain. That Britain had asked to join um, after Brexit to join the Basic Free Trade Agreement in procurement, which is the government procurement agreement. That that Britain, the United Kingdom, had taken the first steps to joining the government procurement agreement as an autonomous nation. They sort of lay the foundation. Yes. And that the Americans had tried to derail that, and which was a real surprise to the Brits because, of course, they expect to be able to have all these free trade agreements with the Americans, that the Americans would be 
would be creating barriers was very surprising to them. Um, and my, my, my colleague in Britain, who is, has a very dry sense of humor, he, and he also thinks that Brexit is a silly idea, he wrote, well, this Brexit was such a good idea until this particular point. Because uh, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> they can see now that the Americans will take an adversarial approach. Americans in separate bilateral negotiations with the United Kingdom will, of course, naturally try to gain as much advantage as possible. It will not be a cakewalk. And right. the, the U.S. is launching negotiations with the U.K. and lo- at the same time launching negotiations with the European Union. So the U.S. is positioning itself post-Brexit to deal with them separately. But I think the, the Brits are beginning to realize that they will not necessarily get a sweet deal from the Americans. Yeah. So and so, so moving on, I guess that's the next area I wanted to sort of tackle with you is the Buy America, uh, Buy American initiative, you know, that – that sort of sparked some of this, you know, this, uh, you know, the European Defense Fund. You know, from when talking in the first segment, um, you know, where I mean, you don't hear a lot about it in a procurement sense anymore, um, and there is a lot of this bilateral nego- negotiating going on. Um, so where are we with the, you know, the president's Buy American initiative? Well, the president issued an executive order in April 2017, which called for a report on how to affect Buy American, how to how to uh, use be more aggressively about be the, how the federal government could be more aggressive about buying American goods and services. And that was the report was supposed to come out thanks last Thanksgiving, and nothing happened. This is just just a giant void. We're waiting for the report to be issued. The other shoe didn't drop. So members of Congress from districts that and from states that really favor closing borders, they they sent public complaints to the Trump administration. Hey, where's your report? But nothing was ever issued. Instead, we see some smaller initiatives going forward, and we're kind of waiting to see which way the Trump administration might go in terms of implementing this. By I, I, I have no doubt that in the 2020 election, Buy American will be a very big deal for President Trump. He'll want to be able to point to success in Buy American, and then we have to try to figure out how he will, he, how he would accomplish that. Um, a very early indication, Roger, was in the in the wall. The early procurement documents that were issued for the wall indicated one way that the Trump administration should go. So, if you go back to the Buy American Act from 1930, okay, and right at that point, we do have to take our break, and we'll go back to the Buy American Act <laughs> when we come back. Uh, you can give us a history lesson, Professor. Right? Okay. <laughs> My guest today is uh, Professor Chris Christopher Eukins. He is a co-director of the Government Procurement. Law program at George Washington University Law School. You are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. My guest today is Professor Christopher Eukins. He serves as director, co-director of the Government Procurement Law Program at George Washington University Law School and is an acknowledged expert in in the foreign acquisition rules and, you know, and, and procurement systems around the world and lectures around the world uh, um, on, on government, U.S. government procurement and comparative systems and how, it all, how we should all work together. Right, Chris? <laughs> or not. We, we try. Uh, we, we try. try. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, uh, and speaking of working together, we're, we're talking about the Buy America Act uh, in, initiative uh, this administration at the end of the last segment, and you were about to talk when I when we had to take the break about the examples in you know the procurements to support the construction of the of the border wall and how Buy American Act 
by American was being implemented via that procurement as maybe a model or not? Yeah, what's interesting is if you go back to the 33 Act, the 33 Act, is, it says just flat out you have to buy American. And it doesn't really it doesn't set up the price preference we're used to. Now we're used to, in federal procurement, we're used to a 6% price preference for things that are covered by the Buy American Act. And that's things that are above the micro-purchase threshold, but then below the, the trade agreement threshold. And for supplies, that the trade agreement threshold, it varies over time, but it's, it's about $200,000. So in that band between the micro-purchase threshold, about $10,000, to the, the about $200,000. In that band from 10000 to 200000 the Buy American Act applies. And, the, and we'll, we've always assumed that there's going to be a 6% preference because that's, that's the way it's implemented in our regulation. 6% price preference, a 12% price preference if small businesses are involved. And then potentially in the Defense Department, you can have a 50% preference, but we never ever see that in the real world because the defense procurements are covered by those reciprocal defense agreements we talked about. So if you're buying something, let's say $150,000 worth of stuff from Germany, it's going to be covered by the, if it's defense material, it'll be covered by the reciprocal defense agreement. So we never see the 50% preference in practice. So we have a 6%, roughly speaking, generally speaking, a 6% price preference for the Buy American Act. But that is not in the statute. That was something that was issued during the Eisenhower administration. The Eisenhower administration picked that price preference. So it's a matter of administrative discretion or executive discretion. And what we saw in the initial Trump wall procurement was the Trump administration figured this out. And individual procurements, you can change the amount, you can change the price preference, you can do it on an agency-wide basis, or President Trump could do it government-wide. So what they did in these initial wall procurements is they raised the price preference to 25%. The, at the wall, it's cheaper and easier to use, if you're building a wall, to use Mexican suppliers. But by putting a 25% price preference, the idea was to discourage the use of Mexican suppliers. And it was a first signal from the Trump administration that they might use an increased Buy American price preference to try and set up a barrier to foreign goods. Now, it would only cover relatively small supplies. It covers larger construction projects. That's why it was material, why you could see Right, that. you could do it for a large construction project. That's yeah. why you saw it in the Trump in the, in the wall. It was, it was a larger number. Yeah. But still, is a recognition that the president has the power to raise that price preference. Essentially, it's almost like the tariffs. Suddenly, we'd have a huge layer of additional price preferences, huge layer of additional prices, higher prices imposed in federal procurement were the president to try that approach. But I, I think that it's more likely, if, if you had to game it out, what is the president most likely to do between now and 2020? What's probably the thing that would be easiest for him to do would be for there to be a Trump um, infrastructure construction bill, a trillion-dollar infrastructure construction bill passed. If that happened, for example, if it happened in a the after the midterm elections, it happened in a in a Democratic-controlled House, which would probably support it. If it got through the Senate, it would be very easy to include the kind of domestic preference we saw in the Recovery Act. Yeah, that's why I, I knew you were going to go there. It's exactly what, when you started down that conversation. Very Perfect simple. example. Yeah, interesting. What was but was especially interesting in the in the implementation of the Recovery Act was, there, and there were reports that followed after the Recovery Act. They, remember, the the point of the Recovery Act was to pump seven hundred eighty five billion dollars into the marketplace really quickly. 
And part of that was through federal and state procurement. The state procurement would be under grants. And the question was, how can you do that quickly enough to cause the fiscal stimulus that you want? And what the the subsequent report showed was this domestic preference, Recovery Act domestic preference under Section 1605, was in fact one of the largest barriers, one of the biggest reasons that these projects were slowed as people sorted out with modern supply chains that are inherently global. How do you deal with a very strong domestic preference? There was another... Well, even on the government side, I can remember like, you know, OMB issuing, you know, these big, long sets of guidance going state by state for the grant money as to what, what... the rules of the road were. It was complicated. Well, was, lawyers made a lot of money out. Lawyers didn't make a lot of money, money out of it. But and what was what I found was interesting, Roger, is so what what are the maxims that drive this area? What are the what are the rules of the road? What are the principles that uh, the organizational principles that really inform this area? That's one of the questions you ask as a professor. And what I think is true, Roger, is that when you look at it. Agencies actually hate domestic preferences. Agencies are mission-focused. They want to buy the best thing out there. They don't want to have to deal with domestic preference. And so what you saw, you're talking about the guidance that came out of OMB. The OMB guidance ultimately was more rigid than what the, the, the route the government went down. It was a very technical question about how you define what would be manufactured in the United States. And I won't go into the technical niceties, but what you saw was a regulatory shift, Roger, towards more liberal, a more liberal approach in order to open the gates to a broader supply chain. And you see this again and again. You, saw, you, you certainly see it in, in specialty metals. Push comes to shove. Agencies don't actually like these domestic preferences because they get in the way of the, of the mission of the agency. And that is a very interesting part of this, this overall dynamic. The other thing that happened after the Recovery Act was actually really funny. We, I was talking to – we had a forum in Germany and the, we, with the head of the German, con, the German Federal Construction Division that was in charge of doing – because the Germans did exactly the same thing. They had a fiscal stimulus. He was in charge of getting construction money out into the German economy in order to have his – because they were suffering the same Great Recession. And I asked him – I said, well, how did you decide how much money to pump into the German construction sector? And he thought for a minute. He said, well, that's pretty simple. We figured out how much stimulus we could put in without causing inflation. And I, we, the Americans sort of slapped our heads. We thought, wow, no one ever thought about that here. We never thought about when the stimulus package was put together. It was very sloppy. It was the end of the Bush administration. Yeah, beginning, beginning of the Obama administration. Yeah, it, was, it was a crisis. Yes. No one ever thought about the inflationary impact. And there, I, there was never a public discussion of that. And it was it's fascinating. The Germans had thought about that, and we hadn't thought about yeah, it. Yeah. Interesting. So the, real quickly, you, I know we want to take – so we have the Buy American Act, but also what you got going on out there are all these different ongoing negotiations uh, regarding procurement and you know, and how they impact the United States or not. Um, do you want to touch on those a little bit? I know we just had the new – what is it? USMCA? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so NAFTA 2.0, the U.S. Marine uh, – U.S.-Mexico Canada Agreement, the USMCA. So it's, it's, a, it's a build up to that, Roger, because it's an important sequence. So we start with the government procurement agreement, which was really stabilized in 94. It was um, – 
the, the new version became effective in 2014. The government procurement agreement is part of the WTO. So some members of the WTO, and it's primarily industrialized nations, have joined the GPA, joined the WTO government procurement agreement. And, th- and that's actually in our regulations. You can see references to it yes. in the FAR. Yes. So, that, so that's a starting point. And, and most nations, Canada, for example, is a member of the GPA. Then we go to the next step, which is what was... TTIP, which was the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. And the idea was that the Europeans and the Americans would enter into this comprehensive free trade agreement, and part of that would be procurement. What the Europeans really wanted from that TTIP agreement is they wanted access to state and local markets. It drives them bananas that American companies have access to European um, provincial and local markets but they don't have access to our state and local markets through the GPA or otherwise. So the Europeans wanted to enter into a bilateral arrangement with the United States, and the Americans resisted that. The Americans, the Washington always taken the position that for political reasons, not for legal reasons, but for political reasons, the federal government is not going to tell state and local governments what to do about their procurement systems. So the, the Europeans were stymied, and what was beginning at the end of the Obama administration, the window that was cracking open was the possibility that the Europeans would say, okay, Okay, we won't have access to the state and local markets, but we will set up channels for regulatory cooperation so we can eliminate unnecessary technical barriers between the two markets. And that window was just cracking open when President Trump took office. And President Trump has just pushed TTIP to one side. And you recall in his first days in office, he pulled the American, he pulled the United States out of the Trans-Pacific. So it's a parallel arrangement across around, around the Pacific Rim. He said the Americans will they will not join TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And that was a shock. And that, that would have given immediate access for American companies, for instance, to procurement in Malaysia and Vietnam, two countries that have been very much locked to American exporters and, 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 other, and other Pacific Rim countries as well. As part of that arrangement, the TPP arrangement that, that President Trump pulled us out of, Canada and Mexico agreed to side letters that would have said, okay, Chapter 10 of NAFTA covers procurement, but we're going to ignore NAFTA from now on. We're going to just work through TPP. We're going to work, uh, we're going to honor TPP as an agreement among Pacific Rim nations, including the United States, including Mexico, including including Canada. That all fell apart when the United States pulled out of TPP. Meanwhile, by the way, Canada and Mexico have continued to negotiate on TPP in a new iteration. That brings us to this issue of NAFTA. Right. And that, that's perfect segue, uh, stopping point. We can talk NAFTA or, or now um, USMCA. I still haven't got my, you know, my mind around it, I guess, or my, you know, Just be able to pronounce Corps. it right. Just think of the Marine Corps. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, very good. Uh, my guest today is Christopher Eukins. He is the co-director of the Government Procurement Law Program at George Washington University Law School. And you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. My guest today is Professor Christopher Eukins, who is a co-director of the Government Procurement Law Program at the George Washington University Law School. Um, uh, an acknowledged expert on, as you've heard from the show, on uh, foreign acquisition rules, procurement across the globe. Um, and he is a globetrotter, having lectured all over the world on U.S. procurement and also comparative procurement systems. 
Uh, Chris, when we took the break, um, you were about to tackle NAFTA or NAFTA 2.0 or the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement or the USMCA. Did I get all the names right there? You did. It's, <laughs> it's impressive. It's um, thank you. <laughs> the, and actually, to, and to, to uh, President Trump said that he liked the name because it reminded him of the Marine Corps. Oh, there um, you go. Yep. The so the USMCA the, for for the chapter in the USMCA or NAFTA two point that history that I talked about before the break really squarely presented this question, which is okay, President Trump pulled us out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And we know what the Trans-Pacific Partnership would have looked like, what markets, for example, would have given the United States access to in Malaysia. Malaysia, by the way, has a very, very strict domestic preference for native Malays. So these are markets that are difficult to penetrate. TPP would have given us access to them. President Trump pulls us out. We're back to, we retreat to USMCA, and his strategy is to try to enter into bilateral negotiations in general because he believes that the United States then can exercise his greater negotiating power in bilateral as opposed to multilateral relationships and negotiations. So the question is, do you get a better deal, as President Trump would say, a better deal out of USMCA than you do out of the TPP? And I have to say, at the end of the day, the United States didn't, certainly not with regards to procurement. I'm not going to speak to the other industries, but with regards to procurement, it's kind of astounding. Because what happened in the USMCA, and this really hasn't been covered in the popular press, is in the procurement chapter of NAFTA 2.0, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, the Canada just pulled out. If you read, you read through the chapter, and suddenly there's a provision saying, oh, by the way, Canada isn't part of this. It was astounding. I thought, I, I thought I'm making a mistake. So I went to a Canadian website. The Canadian government said, yes, that's right. We've pulled out. I went, Gene Greer is one of the, the yes, best analysts in Gene, this area. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, Gene, and Gene wrote a very good blog entry on, on, her, on her blog, jogge.com. Gene talked about the fact that the Canadians pulled out. She was as surprised as I was. What this meant was that the United States in USMCA really entered into just another bilateral agreement with Mexico. And as Gene pointed out, even in that, it, it paralleled what the United States already had in NAFTA. It may not be better than what the United States had in NAFTA. And the United States lost the opportunity to pull Canada with regards to procurement in. So what did Canada do? Canada very interestingly said, thanks very much, sir, but we're not going to play in procurement under this, re- uh, under this agreement. We're going to rely on the GPA. Remember the agreement I told you about before this under the WTO? This is a blanket agreement that covers most of the industrialized nations. So Canada said, well, thanks very much, but we're going to rely on that GPA agreement instead. We're not going to engage in the battle. And you have to say, what is it? What is it that the Canadians wanted to avoid in a mano a mano with the Trump administration? What about procurement made that chapter so attractive? And the answer is probably strict reciprocity. And the idea of strict reciprocity, Roger, is that if a country, let's say Azerbaijan, has only a billion dollars of addressable market, and the United States has $500 billion, if in under strict reciprocity, under this concept that hasn't, that really we haven't ever seen put into an agreement, but it's been it's been floated by the Trump administration. Under strict reciprocity, Azerbaijan would only gain access to one billion dollars in 
American procurement. And everybody said, well, how would you implement that? That just, that's completely impossible. To, and people, what people were actually talking about, Roger, is giving these small countries one day of access to the, the American procurement market. It's for us, it's completely crazy. Because you know what will happen. Those contracting officers have been told by their program officers, we want to make sure that we, re, we access a certain technology in Azerbaijan. They would try to set up their procurement so they just open on that one afternoon or that one sure, day. Sure, it's yeah. just crazy. The, the Canadians found that idea of strict reciprocity very offensive, and they said so publicly. What was really interesting, what was really interesting, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce covered this, the Mexican response. It was really interesting. The Chamber of Commerce published something. They published a, a white paper that said, oh, by the way, we've looked at this. The Mexicans have almost no practical access to the federal procurement market. If you go through the data, there are just no Mexican companies. The Mexicans never try to even get into the federal procurement market for whatever reason, probably because they feel like they couldn't succeed. Americans have billions of dollars of access to the Mexican market. So the, Amer- the Mexicans said, great, bring it on. Under strict reciprocity, if you're only going to give us access to a very small part of the federal procurement market, we don't care but we're also going to give you that same amount of access to the Mexican procurement market, which, by the way, is less access than you already have. So the, if we'd gone to strict reciprocity with the Mexicans, Americans would have lost under that approach on a, on a net current basis. Sure, interesting. So the, that didn't appear in the Mexican agreement. So the idea of strict reciprocity probably drove the Canadians out of NAFTA 2.0, and it was dropped vis-a-vis. does not appear in the agreement now between Mexico and the United States. All right. Is there... You know, at some point down the road, could you foresee Canada and the United States readdressing procurement at some point? Yeah, I think that would it would likely happen were a um, the Trump administration or a different administration enter into what is really TPP 2.0. It's a new okay. version of the TPP. The United States would gain access, and it's important, Roger, because. Um, there are, right you're, as you're keenly aware, because of the coalition's work with the, the Trade Agreements Act, you're very aware of the Trade Agreements Act yes. uh, issues that arise. Once these nations join these free trade agreements, then there's no more Trade Agreements Act problem. They, right. they automatically yep. slide in. Mm-hmm. So let's take, for example, Malaysia and Vietnam. If the United States reengages on the TPP, then Malaysia, IT goods primarily from Malaysia and Vietnam would no longer trigger TAA problems. I firmly believe that with regards to China, that the United States, that President Xi and President Trump will get together at some point and enter into a comprehensive trade agreement. I think it's in the political interests of both leaders. And when that happens, what we see the pattern is that in these ma- these huge umbrella arrangements between China and the United States, government procurement tends to get slid in sideways. And at that point, China would finalize its position. The United States would accede to China joining the GPA. And the Trade Agreements Act issues, the TAA issues we see regarding Chinese goods, again, office products and IT goods, those would go away as well. So I, 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 that's, the, that's the likely thing that happen in the future. When that happens, we, we're all caught up in these trade battles. We have to understand, Roger, what that really means is that we'd be giving first access to very low-cost producers, first access to the Chinese, to the Malaysians, to the Vietnamese, ultimately to the Indians as well, because Indians will join the GPA as well. Yeah, if the Chinese join, yeah. It changes the nature yeah. of our marketplace. Yeah. It changes yeah. the nature. Uh, suddenly we have a huge inrush of low-cost goods, and we have to rethink some of the things, some of our, our basic approaches. For example, the, Amer- the Europeans don't have the Trade Agreements Act. They don't bar the Chinese. The, and now the Chinese goods and construction are pouring into the European markets, 
the Europeans have had to rethink the idea of what we call price realism, unrealistically low prices. Yes. How you deal with that is a mechanical matter. Historically, GAO and, and other lawmakers in the federal system have said, we're not going to take a hard look at price realism. If a, if a, if a contractor ta- provides a good that's below its marginal cost of production, tough. It bears the risk. Yes. We're going to let yep. it go forward. That's not, that's not the European approach. The Europeans are very, very concerned about being, um, being snookered by yeah. the Chinese with very, with very low price offers. They take now a very hard look at issues of what we would call price realism. Yeah. So we got a couple minutes left. You know, um, so with your, what you see potentially happening between the United States and China, how, how does uh, all this, these, deal, these deals are not deals and all this, um, how does it impact um, or complicated by na- the national security issues around supply chain risk that everybody seems to be focusing on right now? Yeah, I think, I mean, what's interesting about it is that um, if you look at um, the uh, look at last year's National Defense Authorization Act, there were additional provisions in there giving authority to the Defense Department to take a hard look at supply chain risk and exclude suppliers. Um, the process is already in place to exclude suppliers and afford them very little due process if they're excluded. The Kaspersky Lab situation showed that the United States can respond very aggressively to perceived supply chain risk. So I'd say that the mechanisms are in place, the legal mechanisms are in place, the institutional mechanisms are in place to deal with supply chain risk. Um, would it be? Would we be eliminating a lot of supply chain risk if we completely excluded all Chinese products forever? Probably the answer is yes, but I don't think that's workable in a global in a global marketplace. So the question is, do we have the processes in place to be able to assess supply chain risk and exclude those that pose risk? And it appears it appears at least now that's true. Interestingly, Roger, the, the problem is the flip problem, which is, for example, with cybersecurity. If a right now, if a Swedish company has a really good IT solution, there's almost no IT solutions out there now that don't have a cybersecurity component. Yes. Other countries don't follow, surprising, surprise, surprise, that NIST is an American agency. Mm-hmm. They don't follow NIST standards. And so that Swedish company probably has a cybersecurity solution that doesn't match NIST and therefore isn't, uh, at least ostensibly, acceptable to the American government. So you have an instantaneous barrier to a Swedish solution that might actually be the best solution in the marketplace. It's, that, it's in those areas, Roger, that I think we really need to focus because, it, in effect, we're creating a national security risk by not being able to access the best IT solutions out there. Right. And yeah. they're, they're, the Defense Department has been pretty good about this. The Defense Department has set up a process where if a Swedish provider, the software developer says, hey, yeah, we have a cybersecurity solution that, that we wrap around our application, that cybersecurity solution matches ISO standards, International yes. Standards Organization standards, there's a process in the Defense Department. We can go to the DOD CIO and say, my cybersecurity solution is as good as an S solution. Please accept my pro- my product. And it, it really hats off to the Defense Department for developing that process. The challenge, Roger, is with regards to supply chain risk, cybersecurity, more broadly with regards to foreign trade, being able to set up those processes across the federal government so that we're not artificially blocking program managers and contracting personnel from being able to access the best. No one, Roger, ever wants to buy a lousy foreign product. The only reason they want to buy good ones. Yeah, they want to buy good ones. The only reason these policy issues come up is because the best solution is abroad. Okay. And to be able to access those solutions, we have to have processes in place. Right. And Chris, that's a great place to end the show. I want to thank my guest today, Christopher Eukins. He's a professor 
uh, and co-director of the Government Procurement Law Program at George Washington University Law School. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.